This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Richard Todd. Richard is the director and producer of Dying to Live. Dying to Live is a documentary about organ and tissue donation in Australia and it's currently showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yes, you are tuned in to 3 FM. This is Uncommon Sense. As I mentioned, I'm really excited to have with me Richard Todd, who is a filmmaker. He uh, is the director and producer of this film, Dying to Live. He's also a cinematographer and uh, he's the director of one other very uh, prominent film, doc- a particular documentary that you may have already seen or heard of called Frackman, um, which uh, I hadn't seen yet and I just started watching it last night and was like, oh, it's so good. So I'm really excited now to talk to Richard and discuss your fabulous films, but in particular Dying to Live. Thanks for coming in, Richard. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's so wonderful to have you. You were just saying you're from Western Australia, so yeah, we've brought the weather for you here today and I know you just said you're a surfer, so I don't think we really have any excellent beaches right in Melbourne. No, you have to go for a bit of a wander, mm. probably down to Phillip Island or somewhere. Yep, you could go down to my neck of the woods in the surf coast and Ballerine Peninsula. So there are a few options if you have some time off. Uh, but Richard, we're talking about something particularly important and serious today, which is the topic of organ and tissue donation. And your film talks about this issue through some really important personal stories and they're very moving stories and everyone is you know particularly different and has a a different experience but there's also a common theme which is these people are very unwell some of them are dying you know they have a really limited time to receive an organ and or tissue and uh and you're following these people i mean how did you um First of all, come up with the idea for this film and then how did you, I guess, find the, the right people to tell this story? I've been particularly drawn to, you know, what they're terming now cause documentaries so that so that there's not only a story to be told but, you know, there's something at the end of it and hopefully something that can be fixed or need changing. So obviously with Frackman, you know, the, it was the big debate about coal seam gas versus mm. farmland and water. Um, and then with this one, you know, I found out very early by watching a program um, that um, was actually Al Turner and the Zadie Foundation and there was a program on on Zadie and um, the stat that came out from that was that, you know, if you asked 10 people, 86% of people said that they would donate if, if, they, if it came to, you know, someone passing. Mm. But then when you have a look at how many people are signed up on the registry, it drops down to 36%. And so there's this massive gap where people want to, but for some reason they aren't. Mm. And then there's a further problem with if, if the family do, does not understand the wishes of that particular person when, when, for example, they're in the ICU unit and they have to say goodbye, um, a further 50 percent of the families will actually say no because they don't understand the wishes with mm. regards to someone passing. So you could just see how um, that that willingness of 86% of people just starts to fall and fall and fall until uh, the stage that we're, we're wasting perfectly good, good organs and, mm. and people like the characters are waiting as a result. Yeah, and the foresight... 
um, that sometimes needed to have that discussion. I mean, a lot of people think oh, I'm going to live forever. You know, I'll be 80. Um, and are my organs even useful by then? You know, I can't even think about death right now. Um, or that, like sometimes in your film, some people assume it's on their license because that was the previous regime where you opt in and it's indicated on your driver's license. I mean, what are some of the reasons you've heard for people not having signed up but having, you know, a generally positive attitude to organ donation? Yeah, look, I guess there's a, there's a few myths around kind of organ donation itself and you do hear them it's like oh look mm. I drink too much no one would like my liver is a real common one yeah. obviously uh, smokers think that they can't donate yet yet mm. there's there's amazing technology these days where they can clean real dirty lungs etc so so I mean those type of things come up a lot but I think yeah. part of it has been probably apathy on our own sides and and because there was the easiness of um, the box ticking on the driver's mm. license um, people got used to that system and a lot of people just don't even realize that that it's not on the driver's license in fact Adelaide's sorry South Australia is the only place now that's left with that box ticking system so so they physically have to you know go online and fill out it's a really quick fill out these mm. days they've they've changed um, an old clunky health.gov.au website and now it is really quick it's just a matter of going online filling out the form and you have your medicare card there and you just fill out and you're done like in two minutes mm. so I, I guess with the film we're hoping that um, the film is a tool to be used to to get the awareness out there so that people do sign up and have have that conversation. And look, the other point that you made, Amy, is about, I mean, it's a conversation about death, so it's not your usual Friday evening dinner conversation. Mm. So so the other part of it is, you know, you really have to proactively decide that you're going to go home and talk to your family about, look, if anyone does pass, mm. you know, I just want to tell you that I've decided to be an organ donor, you know, and what about you, what, you know, so I've had the conversation with my wife obviously and, and we've both signed up and then our kids that are 8 and 12 also understand our wishes and um, and it's the same with my parents, they know if anything ever happens to all of us, they know mm-hmm. that, you know, we we want to donate, you know. Yeah, and there are some circumstances where, you know, even if you've signed up and you've expressed that you want to donate, you know, the death kind of has to occur in certain circumstances to enable the organs to be viable. So certainly, even those who have registered, you know, either may not pass away soon, which is great. You know, we obviously wouldn't want that. But then, you know, even if they've signed up, their organs may not be viable in some way or cannot be retrieved in time to use them. Yeah, it's 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 real. It's a really important fact. There's only one percent. Of, of circumstances that mm. tick all the boxes and it, and it usually um, involves them being kind of inside a hospital already and they're already, you know, on life support, etc. So, so you know, it is a misconception, which I also had, you know, you often have that image of, you know, motorbike rider on the side of the road and thinking, oh, he's going to be an organ donor. But unless you know, suddenly he or she was rushed back and they were on life support and still yeah. still alive at that stage, um, the conditions wouldn't wouldn't warrant organ donation because the organs start to deteriorate so quickly, mm. as you can imagine. Yes, you need the heart to continue pumping blood through your body to keep all those organs alive 
and and working. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, even though you know it could it could end up with brain death, yeah. But the heart's still going to to now. Now there's amazing stuff um, coming out of some of our hospitals in Australia. For example, we did a a little sequence at St Vinnie's in Sydney. It didn't make mm. it into the final cut, but but um, there's this technology called Heart in the Box, and they literally. Um, once they've removed um, the heart from from the donor person, yep. they're able to keep this um, the heart alive at, at a at a kind of at a better rate, and then that allows them to to move the heart distances mm. they weren't able to move them in the past because because that deterioration period is extended. Uh, because of this heart in the box technology, and I mean, and they're starting to try to do it with other organs also. Well, that's really excellent to hear. And there's some amazing um, transplant surgeons that you feature in this film, um, which, are, you know, they just seem like they're doing such nerve-wracking but very important work. Um, and they certainly, as in the film, feel that gravity of just how, you know, serious this, this work is. I want to start with Zadie. You mentioned her and she is the beginning of the film and she really, her story, you know, bookends the film. It's all about, um, you know, a young girl who's given, said she, you know, told her parents she wanted to give her organs and tissue if she was to die. Um, which is, you know, so impressive and mature and brave, you know, to be thinking about that at such a young age. Um, she was one of the youngest. I think um, her dad, Alan, said that in 2004 she was the only child under the age of 16 to be an organ and tissue donor. She was about seven and a half. Yeah, that's right. Away. And, in fact, when I first um, saw that story on, I think it was a Today Show, um, my daughter was around the same age, at, mm-hmm. you know, of seven years old, Kiki, and, and, you know, it really struck a chord because I was just thinking, you know, imagine um, just, just, A, losing someone at that age because it's such a puppy dog age. Mm-hmm. And then, secondly, her having that, like you said, that maturity to to say to mum and dad, you know, if anything ever happened, I wanted to donate my organs. And then, you know, then Al and Kim, um, who's Zadie's mum, thinking about the fact that she was the, the, the only girl under the age of 16 in Victoria that year and, mm-hmm. and they were like, that. I mean, kids die, so how could that be? So that was the beginning of, you know, a big campaign on, on Alan's side, um, starting with the kind of Rainbow Foundation in Zadie's name. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I don't think he expected it to turn out to what it turned out to be because, you know, it started off as a part-time thing while he was doing his full-time job, but very, very, it, it, it quickly grew and, and the obsession took over and now Al's, you know, running this big foundation and he has been doing so for nearly 10, well, just over 10 years now. Well, it's really impressive the work he's been doing and, it, and this is really featured in the film. And obviously the lack of awareness was clear, um, you know, when they're up at the MCG and the cricket's on and they're talking to a range of people. You know, you see so many people signing up who assumed they were either signed up or didn't even know, you know, that it was an easy thing to opt in. Um, that kind of awareness raising and education is really important. This film is important in terms of um, providing an insight into the lives of people who really need 
um, the donation of an organ and or tissue. And I really want to talk about some of the people who receive um, donations or are waiting for one. Um, there's a whole range of people. Uh, Kate Hansen is one of those people who has type 1 diabetes and has been, you know, suffering with that since she was about four. Um, and she's been on is it dialysis quite a long time, has a lot of pain, um, many symptoms. She has press syndrome um, and she's waiting for a kidney and a pancreas. So that's, you know, a pretty big operation to, you know, need two organs. Um, and she's still waiting yeah, um, I mean, out of the half a dozen characters, I mean, thankfully, um, everyone except for Katie and ends up actually with the transplant mm. at the end of the film. So it was really tough because, I mean, obviously got to know her so so well. I, you know, she's she's a really good friend now, mm. and I know the family really well. And um, Mum Lisa's constantly keeping me in the loop if anything's going wrong and also if anything's going right and um sadly yesterday when i when i jumped off the plane uh, sorry on sunday i found out that um kate had had a heart attack that morning and and took nearly 90 minutes of a whole bunch of great hero ambos to bring her back and she's currently in hospital now mm. and she's and she's pretty sick she's she keeps on threatening to escape and come to the screening tonight <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'd love to take the screening to her yeah. so we, we are talking about some of the cast are talking about going there tomorrow just to go and visit her so no she she's in a whole lot of pain and she's just she's just out of the ICU unit again and and what she's had to battle I mean mm. she's an absolute Viking warrior, you know, that's it's um, it's quite soul destroying to see what what she has to go through, and hence why if we can get the Kates off the list any quicker, um, you know, it's just going to reduce the amount of time that they have to spend on on the waiting list. Mm. It takes a lot of grit and resilience, and I think that's an understatement, to get through what Kate's going through. And certainly some of the things she says, um, you know, is that she's fighting for her family and her partner as well as for herself, um, because obviously no one would want to lose Kate, but it takes a toll. And, you know, she doesn't want to be a burden, she says, to, to other people. And I know that's a common theme for people with chronic illness is, you know, they don't want to be different and they want to have a normal life. And, you know, people, I think, take that for granted, having, you know, normalcy and um, family with them and not needing to plan their lives around an illness. But, you know, with all of these people that you're featuring, you know, they talk about not having a normal life and, and having to constantly think about their illness and how all-consuming it can be. I mean, it's not really a, a great way to live, is it? No, and I think it's a, a real eye-opener uh, and I hope people will really feel that by watching the film mm. um, as to kind of how appreciative we should be for normality. You know, there's a, there's a stage when... Uh, I know Woody, one of the other characters, talks about that, you know, I asked him about his bucket list and he's like, all I want to do is eat a banana, you know, because of the potassium yeah. and the dialysis. He can't eat bananas and he loves them. And he's like, yeah, I, you know, I said, you know, what do you want to do when he's a bikey? I thought for sure he's going to say, I'm going to, I want to drive right across Australia, you know, but he was <laughs> like, oh, I just want to have a wee and eat a banana, you know, yeah. and, I, and so whenever... You know, we start complaining about any of our first world problems. It's, you know, I often say to my son, hey, you know, like Woody just wants to take a piss. Like that's yeah, all he exactly. wants to do. <laughs> yeah. 
<coughs> it is really shocking. And he actually had two uh, kidney transplants before that, you know, didn't work for various reasons. And he has a third. I mean, that's a, a huge amount of operations to go through and a lot of up and down really isn't it and oh, unknown uncertainty yeah totally and um you know there's there is um, some pretty dark times for them you know going through those journeys and you know you, you spoke about that bird and you know, would he hardly he's he's quite close to where i live in margaret river and he he wouldn't even let people know that he was sick a lot of people didn't even know that he had a kidney problem or that he was going to do dialysis three times a week and he would just keep that to himself you know mm. and a lot of it um you know like kate said the same thing about I think the the reality of um, making this film for me was seeing like what it's actually like on a daily basis for not only them but mm. them and their family. And I mean, the family's going through a, a mental pain rather than a physical pain. But but there is that constant. There's no way to plan for tomorrow unless you know you're going to have it. And then even having it, um, you know, how long. Will, will the organ last and will I end up sick again or will I, you know, have a great run? So they also have a really amazing philosophy on, you know, living, you know, each day to the fullest because, mm. because they have been in that position of not knowing if there was going to be a tomorrow. Exactly. And um, that's an excellent point you make about not wanting to look sick. You know, a lot of people look really well but actually there's a lot happening behind the scenes at home you know they're putting on a brave face you know they might be putting on their makeup or working out like Woody was to to look like he was fit and well but really you know he's really struggling mm-hmm. so I think that's another thing is that you know what you see on the surface isn't really what's happening underneath and that's what this documentary is doing is bringing you into their homes I mean it's obvious that you were there at some really key points you and the crew but also you it looks like you gave them um, cameras at times to film um, some of the moments when you couldn't be there yeah there was a couple of little um, cameras that we sent out at different times um, and also we tended to have a film crew um, across all of the states. So we filmed mm. in four different states. Um, so I had a guy called Richard Kickbush here in Victoria who's a great cameraman and um, but it was also really important that um, not only were they good cinematographers but they had to have the right kind of vibe to be able to slip into some pretty, you know, there's some pretty precarious moments within the film where we we were really let in by the families mm. and Rich had that right demeanour and he got to know um, Kate's family really well and and sometimes I get a call from Lisa, um, Kate's mum, just saying, you know, um, Kate's in an ambulance. She's on the way to the hospital. And and it's, you know, it take me 10 hours to get there from Margaret River. So I'd give Rich a quick call if he was available. He would usually jump in and get there first and then I'd, I'd jump on a plane and make my way over. Mm-hmm. Other times we just had this most bizarre kind of, timing occurring which we which Al said is Zadie pulling the strings but I, I was like on holidays on the Gold Coast with the kids and then Tony Barrett who has the liver transplant he's based in Brisbane mm. and I get the phone call probably six months earlier than they're expecting to say Tony's just about to go in for his liver transplant I'm like 
no way I'm on the Gold Coast. So I jumped in the car at, you know, 10pm and I was there in 40 minutes. So we had a bit of that occurring too, just this incredible serendipity when yeah. when I seemed to be in the right place to be able to get somewhere. And it was the same with Holly. I was actually in Perth on the way over to see Kate and Alan in Melbourne. And I, and I was, instead of being Margaret River three hours away, I was yeah. actually in Perth when I got the call from Holly saying she was going to get her lung transplant. So it was quite bizarre that, you know, the timing was just right for us to be able to capture some of those moments. Yeah, I did wonder that because you're covering a lot of stories in this film and it's obvious that it's a long-term project because, you know, waiting on the list is a long-term thing. Um, and you talk about Holly. I mean, that's one of the stories that's really moving, although they all are, but that one, um, you know, towards the end, it's just like... How how does this all happen? Oh, because yeah. Holly got a double lung transplant because she um, suffers from cystic fibrosis, which looks like a, a horrible thing to have to go through. And she, I think, had about two years approximately to go. Um, and, you know, the fact that she got the lung transplant was a big deal. But then at the end, in this wonderful event, um, you know, where they've got donors' families there and, and uh, the people who've received donations, there's a, an amazing meeting between um, Holly and someone else. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, without giving ma- it all ma- away? yeah I won't give too much away. But it's, um, oh, well, it's, a, it's a really interesting um, topic that it, it's quite topical right now because mm. there there is. Um, like a clover secrecy between um, the donor families and the recipients um, and it's not dissimilar to the way that, you know, adoption works, etc. Mm. But there, there is a... Um, there is a way of them being able to communicate via donate life, and and the question is, is getting thrown around as to, um, you know, whether um, the the kind of the rules around that could be loosened up a little bit. Mm. Um, there, there's also talk of times when that kind of relationship doesn't work and, and part of the reason I think of not just having a direct um, introduction between donor families and um, a recipient mm. is that because of the times when something um, goes wrong. For example, the one that springs to mind from my side of it is um, if they get to know each other and then for any reason the donor family finds out that, that the organ hasn't survived or there's rejection, yeah. etc. cetera. Um, but anyway, it's a really interesting debate that's occurring right now and I don't know if there's a clear answer on it because mm. obviously being a recipient, you, you'd be pretty keen to say thank you to the donor family and they usually are, um, but the donor family may not always be that interested um, the other way back, you yes. know, because they're still obviously dealing with grief and etc. They're happy that they know that, you know, it, it has helped someone else mm. survive so that there's not that feeling of complete waste, um, which is something that you hear very commonly. But you also hear that not all of the donor families want, want to interact. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty complex um, it's a pretty complex part of, of the whole jigsaw puzzle, to be honest. It is very complex because, I mean, you know, the the donor may have made their wishes known, but perhaps the donor's family don't agree with that and, you know, are upset or, um, you know, or the donor's family had to make a decision on that person's behalf when they weren't absolutely certain of their wishes. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, 
not really, I'm not saying ethical issues, but just things like big issues, Mm. really serious questions that are hard for anyone to have to deal with. But certainly when it happens and you're, you're dealing with grief immediately and someone is, you know, going to die and they're in hospital. I mean, that's kind of the last thing anyone really wants to deal with, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I, 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 personally haven't been in that situation but I really can't imagine it and you when you talk to people that have been like Alan Turner obviously mm. when, when they went through it and just almost you know like it's occurring but a numbness not knowing what's happening and I think that gets back to that kind of that first point that we made that how important it is to have had that conversation because once you know then that's taken out of it and also you you could have a bunch of family members turn up for example sisters brothers uncles you know grandparents now um, some of them may not know the wishes. However, if if the immediate family does know the wishes, they, they, they're like, oh, no, he he or she specifically said to me that they want and they're on the registry, you mm. know, so, so there's no there's no grey area. And then you go, oh, you, you could almost then convince other members of the family. But if it is grey and they're not on the registry, then, of course, in that moment of grief and you're dealing with everything else, for sure you would err on the side of conservatism, Mm. I'd imagine, and go, well, you know, I didn't know, so maybe, you know, do we want to do it? Because he never said anything to me, for example. So, yeah, it just shows how important it is to to have, like, to sign up and have the chat. Exactly. And a lot of the um, things that can be donated often you wouldn't assume would make a real difference. But there is a story, um, and I think it is... Let me double-check. Henry? Yes, Henry about his uh, corneas. And, I mean, that's a really critical example of, you know, he needs to care for his wife who is becoming more frail. He wants to be able to see his own country. Um, He's an Indigenous Australian man who's you know, lives in the outback. Um, You know, it's just a really great example of, of something that can make a real difference, but it's you know, it's tissue really, and it, it isn't a whole eye or anything. It's like a, a the film over an eye that's really going to make a difference to his whole life. Yeah, and the tissue often ends up the poor cousin in this story. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about the tissues, we we didn't say it in the film, but but it is an important point, um, and that is that you don't have to be in that one percent situation that we spoke about earlier on that you do with organs. So mm-hmm. so even people that have passed at home, for example, still have the opportunity to donate tissues. And so so that's, um, you know, it's they are important, obviously, skin tissues for burns victims, etc., corneas yeah. for people that are blind. I mean... Um, There's heart valves as well. Heart yeah. valves, exactly. And with Henry, for example, um, you know, his wife's in a wheelchair with bad, uh, really bad hip problems, etc. Mm. And so Henry ends up kind of being, you know, her feet. He pushes around town, Horse Creek in the Kimberley. Mm. Um, and um, Barbara, his partner, um, is basically Henry's eyes until we until we follow him through to the corneal transplant. And, and obviously even being able to see a few feet now, which before, you know, he, he would only literally be able to see you know, six inches away. So mm. so now even to be able to see a little bit of a distance and, and now to be able to, like, steer steer the wheelchair himself, etc. I'm sure it's made a really big difference to both 
Henry and Barbara's life. Mm. And and as you said, it's really important. Um, it's brought up in the film that they are able to see their country. There's a you know a completely different connection to country, obviously, with the Indigenous uh, First Nations people versus you know us. Us white Aussies, um, so yeah. so it is really important for Henry. When I spoke to him prior prior to him having the transplant, you know, he he just often spoke about just wanting to be able to see rocks and trees and mm. country again. Well, it's, it's certainly something we're taking for granted every day. Um, I'm speaking with Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live, which is showing tonight at the Melbourne International Film Festival and on Thursday night, so two opportunities. Um, I want to close out our discussion by talking about the many people involved and also the funding for this film because as we know uh, funding any film in Australia is quite difficult and you um, have a range of of funding sources and one of them is through Good Pitch which is you know has a range of um, philanthropists and other uh, interested parties who are part of that could you talk a bit about how you managed you know that element of you know you knew the the story is important the issue is really vital so it's contributing to public debate how did you get people behind this project so we went through the traditional side for the first part of the financing which is our screen agency so mm. it was supported because i'm in wa firstly screen west was involved and then my co-producer ben mcneil he's he's based in brisbane so we also went through screen queensland from his end mm-hmm. then the national body screen is Australia came on board. So with those three elements um, and a distributor, which is Madman, Madman came on as the distributor. And, you know, and it's fantastic because for someone like Madman, it wasn't really a commercial decision. It was was a real decision to support it because of of what the film was speaking to. Mm. And, um, you know, we thank them a lot because of without making those decisions um, as a distributor, we, we cannot get... Um, the the rest of the financing, so that kind of locked up the the production budget side of things. And then three years ago, um, Ian Darling brought the good pitch model to Australia, um, and basically the idea of it is that they find half a dozen cause documentaries each year. They have to be um, this kind of feature film length, mm. so they're usually films that are made for cinema. And they have to have that, uh, you know, there's got to be a reason behind the filmmaker making the film. So we were very uh, fortunate in 2014 to be chosen with Frackman for Good Pitch. So so we were one of six films that year that got chosen. And um, we got to understand how it was going to work with partners and philanthropists and, and how we could then steer an outreach campaign using the film as the tool. So... Mm-hmm. Third year of Good Pitch, which was uh, 2016, was the final instalment of of them doing it. So they now have something like 19 films um, as a result of three years of Good Pitch, and um, yeah, Dying to Live was one of those. So so we'll now start partnering up with a whole bunch of. Um, different groups and working out how we can have special screenings rather Mm. than just the cinematic um, screenings. Uh, And, you know, we tend to do event screenings where we can have characters there or myself or Ben go along or Felicity, our impact producer, goes along and, and we try to get some type of outcome by using the film 
as the, as the tool. Because mm. I saw on your website you are open to community screenings and to try and get the word out to a whole range of Australians. Is that something people can express interest in or institutions can if they want to, you know, be part of this? Yeah, totally. I mean, we encourage, you know, um, hospitals and people that are touched by the transplant world, whether it's someone that's just had a family member that thinks they can get 100 people together at a community screening and they can just fill out, you know, uh, online on our website. Um, They can just jump on dineliv.com.au and they can just, yeah, say we're interested in hosting a screening. Mm. And we we did the same with Frackman so we know how the model works. We use a cinema on demand model, which is just a matter of them ticketing and once once it tips over a certain number of people, the screening goes ahead. So it's a it's a good, easy platform um, to use. Mm. And and it's um it's a great way to take it um, you can do it in the cinema, but you could also do it in a country hall if there's not a cinema in your town. Mm. And this is really all to, I guess, talk about this issue which we've been discussing. And um, I know that there has been a huge drive to get more people signed up in, you know, a rate over many years and it's clear that Alan has been, you know, a huge part of that movement as well as Donate Life. But in 2017, uh, it's good to note here that 1,675 lives were transformed by 510 deceased and 273 living organ donors. So, you know, the people who have donated the organs are a really critical part of this story that you show in the Zadie, but there's also Alice, the mother who, you know, gives her kidney, one of her kidneys to her son. Um, So there are people who, you know, they're a mother, they're a friend, they're a relative who are donating, you know, one of their kidneys to people who really need it right now. So that's another element of, of the story. Yeah, totally. And young Levi, I mean, you know, he was sick with with kidney problems from being born. And when I met him, he was only one one year old, gorgeous little kid. And they were waiting for the right time um, so that Alice could donate. And then um, they they have this um, indice which works out how 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 well the match would be and luckily for Levi uh, Alice is like a six out of six Mm. and then the backup plan is with Levi's father Reese, who's like a three out of six so so hopefully you know Levi's got um has a good run with this with Alice's um kidney which currently everything seems to be going great Mm. um and then the backup plan is if he needs a second there's the potential that Reese, the father, could could be the donor a second mm. time round, and in the meantime, we just hope as technology improves that um, we can extend the periods of times that these you know these organs will last. But now with um, re- rejection, glo- um, sorry, re- rejection drug technology has got so good that that um, even when the body, as you can imagine, you're putting this foreign object into your body and the first thing your body tries to do is reject it because yeah. your immune system is built to do that so so they've worked out um you know with with all of these different type of drugs how to you know reduce your um immune system for a period with mm. with these immune suppressants and then they've just got to get the balancing act right so that you're not going to get sick in another way yeah. because you've just had a major operation um but 
you can allow the body to shut down part of the immune system so it doesn't reject the organ. Mm. And then slowly but surely after that first period of, of that organ wanting to be rejected, um, it starts home. It's, I mean, it's incredible science, really. It is, yeah. And, you know, there is a constant monitoring, constant blood tests and checking to make sure that everything is going well, especially in that first year. Um, and, yeah, I actually met someone who'd received a kidney who was in my hospital room and he was a lovely Irish man and he was very, very grateful and thought he would also write a letter. So, you know, it was wonderful to see that that was even happening, you know, and it was the first the first time I'd met someone who had received an organ from, from a donor. So, yeah, it certainly got me thinking about, about the issue, but this film has got me thinking even more and I really hope that uh, everyone can head along to see uh, one of the screenings whenever, if they miss out for MIF, because I know it's selling fast, um, there's many other opportunities for them to see it. And I believe distribution is going to be much wider by November. Yeah, we're looking at uh, around the first week, first or second week of um, November, we're going to release through Mad Men. And um, it just happens to be the first week, I think around the 8th of, oh, sorry, the 8th of November is Zadie's 21st birthday oh, so wow. so we we may even you know hang it around that date mm. um and yeah i think there's only like 30 tickets left for tonight as of this morning and then thursday night there's only about 10 so yeah if, if people miss out this time um then be great when we when we're back here in november it'd be, yeah. it'd be fantastic for people to to come along and see it or or to host their own screening Definitely. Richard, it's been amazing to hear from you and to see the work you're doing is just so important and um, also the team that you've got around you to create these documentaries. So congratulations to you and everyone who is part of this film. Yeah, thanks very much, um, Amy, for having us and thanks to Triple R and, and to MIF for, you know, giving us the chance to, to get the word out there. Mm. That has been Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live. It's showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is tonight and Thursday. And there is a Q&A on each night with uh, Richard, some of the cast and crew. So you can meet some of the people who are featured in this film and uh, get along. And I hope that if you wanted to go, you get the last tickets that are available. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.